Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. Uh, good evening, everyone. Thank you for lending your night to our second in the series, uh, our second talk in the series of CyberTalk. And stay tuned for more to come, inshallah, from St. Peter for Cybersecurity. Tonight, we are going to discuss crypto. And no auto, we're not going to discuss mass surveillance because crypto wars, if you Googled it, then it will be a, something, will pop up around mass surveillance of uh, cryptographic protocols and all of this. So no, we're going to discuss the evolution of the crypto and how the community that worked around initiating and designing crypto primitives took in hand um, a responsibility to build better crypto for the different industries and designs. Can I start with a, questions by, a question by asking who dealt with the crypto here in the house? Okay, have a few hands. Who knows what's, who doesn't know anything about crypto? Nice. My kind of audience. And uh, who thinks that they might be right now using crypto within their systems. Oh, good, awareness. I could see some of you coming from space agency. I could see people coming from health industry. Thank, thank you for showing up today. People from oil and gas and people from entertainment in the back. So thank you so much for being here. And I would like to um, you know, emphasize on the fact that all of us in this room, if we're using a digital device, then we do use crypto. So what's crypto? Cryptology is the science, I would say, an art, because it evolved from uh, an artistic perspective and then came into science of construction and validation of certain primitives that will build your security, your integrity, and your um, authentication around the system against having a certain adversarial uh, pressure, okay? So it evolved from random errors to targeted errors. So it evolved from you know, code theory and all of these aspects when you wanted to, when the first communication system wanted to send satellite images from the moon to Earth, so they used most of code theories around and they sent huge images that had certain errors and certain faults but in the crypto system, we deal with induced faults. So maybe that's the plain text ciphered and garbled and sent through the channel, a channel and then deciphered on the other hand, on the other end of the... So it would look something like this. I'm sure most of you who looked at the text of uh, uh, cryptology, I could see people here, yeah, could, see, could identify this picture. So you would have your communication link. And through your communication link here, you would use one of the crypto primitives. This crypto primitive could be a hash function, a cipher that is used for encryption and decryption, or a public key system that would be used for authentication. And then your ultimate goal is whatever your crypto primitive is to make sure you protect M, which is your message, and make sure that you can send it through the channel and then decrypt it at the end. Okay? Easy? Too much information? We'll, we'll, We'll be there, we'll get there soon. 
So how can we, you build a taxonomy around crypto primitives? You will have what we call crypto, uh, symmetric uh, cryptologic uh, primitives, which are like uh, hash functions, uh, uh, ciphers, stream ciphers, block ciphers, and you use them on YouTube, for example, if you want to encrypt uh, a video communication, then it will use a stream cipher by default, which is going to encrypt a bit by bit. If you are using, for example, uh, a larger communication where you want to section this communication into blocks, then you will use a block cipher and send it through the communication channel to protect your security. And symmetric systems, you will use a single key. So if in this picture, the sender and the receiver will have the same key, and then this is the reason why it's called symmetric. And in asymmetric systems, uh, you would use what we call public dual key system where you would have your private and public key. Your private key you would use to encrypt and send messages and your public key you would send to recover messages, okay? A mixed models, models that are composed of both because in today's technology, it's not enough to use symmetric. It's too heavy, you have to use too many keys. Public key, it's fine in terms of number of keys that you're using, but again, there is an issue with, with how fast it works. So there is a hybrid system which uh, encapsulates uh, symmetric cryptology with the rest, okay? So what, is, what would a normal human being think when I discuss crypto? You would think of your iPhone device or your Samsung phone and whenever you send a text from one person to another, maybe right now with WhatsApp, I think most of you heard that WhatsApp enabled encryption on, its, uh, on the devices. So your, your communication will be encrypted. I had a person in the house, I don't see Yasser, but Yasser used to tell me stories about him sitting in coffee shops and just sniffing packets from Android mobile phones and reading all the clear text messages of WhatsApp. And uh, of course, right now you can maybe sleep a little bit, uh, you know, uh, in a very uh, safe mode, knowing that, uh, you know, a WhatsApp enabled encryption on the devices. So, good, step ahead. 2017, we had encryption since ever, and 2017, a major company that uses chatting decided to encrypt uh, these uh, messages. No worries. So, you will find them in your, in your browsers, you will find them in your um, you know, satellite communication systems, major satellite communication system would use different uh, ciphers. We know Athuraya, for example, it's a major communication satellite company, exists in UAE. They enabled encryption on the different uh, communication modes that they are using. Um, so, uh, your smart card, the cards that you use within your, uh, for example, to access buildings, they would use encryption on them. Your RFID tags, like if you have, Oh, I will introduce a cipher later on and we would see that we have a cipher that exists in order to, you know, all of these RFID tags that you have in the back of the book when you go to the library and just, you know, get a book. And these tags are just also, they enable encryption at some level. So from huge devices to small devices, all of things around you would have cryptographic primitive at one point or another. Why? Because cryptography is viewed as the basic building block of security. If you want to build security on top of different layers, for example, protocols or other physical security, then you would have to use cryptography at a certain level, okay? Or locking somehow. Okay, so how did it evolve? How did we go from ciphers and back in the days to what we have at the moment? I would take you through the journey of what we had in the past until, uh, until what we have now, okay? So, 
uh, a major note here is uh, to highlight that crypt cryptography is a contribution of different nations and its evolution of different nations together. So it's not a single uh, nation or a single country or a single population contributing to this. What we know in the text is what have been transported to us in terms of information, but we, there might be certain you know, missing packets and, and, and the translation that we missed around certain nations that also use cryptology. So can you identify these? This series of languages and artifacts so belongs to uh, 1,900 BC until you know, 3,000 actually. This is, this is a Sumerian writing. You would see some in the Louvre, okay? So it's from 3,500 BC. And you could tell that this nation strived in order to communicate among each other. You could create a universal language, right? Why would you create a very selective language to certain number of people? Because you wanted only these, these few people to be able to communicate through them. So we have the Sumerian writings here. We have the holographic writing for the Egyptians, one of the very oldest encryption ciphers. We have the Chinese writing uh, on this side. So an evolution of languages, an evolution of communication, because the human beings, they're social, they wanted to communicate, but they were mindful of their own privacy and they wanted to make sure communication can be only done within sectors of, of groups of people. So every, every nation uh, you know, invented their own language and even within these nations would have groups inventing their own set of languages that they understand themselves, not the others. So, and then we have series of very distinct uh, cryptographic traces that we could see in the, in the old literature. So we could see, um, this is a text from the book of Al-Kindi, and Al-Kindi is, a, is a, a polymathematician, and he is also an Arabic scientist who worked on the verge of art and science. He was consumed as anybody else, I think, it's not only him, but the rest of the scientists at that era, they did not define themselves as being only followers of science or followers of art. They would merge both uh, all disciplines together. And uh, the wave of translations that happened in that era, where you translate text from, for example, Latin to Arabic and Arabic to different texts, dictated on these kind of scientists to make sure that they have a dictionary for this translation. So we, they will translate the books in, in an abstract form, and they would keep their own dictionaries in order to reflect later on these types of translation. So uh, Al-Kindi was one of the first few people who did um, kind of uh, uh, an encryption to the, to the text that he has. And then he did a cipher, a frequency analysis to it. So he wanted to make sure that you can tell from the language frequency that you have. And he described it in his book as well. How can you tell the frequency analysis? You know that, for example, of the, the highest uh, uh, letters exhibited within the text was, for example, a certain letter, then that letter would most probably reflect the highest letter within the common language within that nation or that group of people. And this is uh, Atash. Can you identify the writing? It's in Hebrew. So this is one of the oldest ciphers that, we ident that was identified for that era. And we have uh, the Skitale which is um, a, a Greek invention for a substitution cipher. And later on, we'll be defining a substitution cipher where you substitute what you have in the text uh, with a shift of the letters that you have. So 
you would have this wooden um, piece and then you would just wrap around it um, uh, a leather piece that has the letter on it. And the diameter of the, of the, uh, of the wooden letter will, will decide on the level of substitutions that you will be able to make, okay? Then the evolution comes here where we have the, uh, the I would say the Greek innovative era of making sure that you go around the world and you, the discovery era of everything. So Caesar started with the, his own substitution cipher and this substitution cipher was around making sure that you can shift. For example, you could see here, if you apply the key of 19, then you shift every position of every element here by 19 position. And again, we have uh, a sophisticated uh, view of this uh, by Leon Alberti. And Leon Alberti was an architect, and he designed the first disk cipher, hardware disk cipher, because he built uh, the disk component, and he wanted to build his own uh, polyalphabetic cipher. So it's not a single substitution, but like a matrix of substitutions that you should join together in order to have these ciphers. Beautiful. And then we reach, can you identify this? It's the Enigma machine, right? So this is one of the, what, what's called is the uh, hardware ciphers or machine ciphers. Uh, so it was introduced at the end of World War I uh, by uh, German troops, so German in the house. That's yours, <laughs> okay? They wanted to communicate between the different uh, troops, um, okay? And, uh, and here you could see that uh, a level of complexity is added. So we started with Caesar where, or Caesar where you have one single rotation for the substitution. Then um, uh, Alberti came and he added two or three level of substitutions. But here, for, for this German uh, ciphering machine, uh, you would have one, two, three, four, or five, depending on the routers that you have in the machine. And each router will have a substitution that will be affected by the key uh, that you will enter to this machine. This machine was broken by a Polish, uh, Polish uh, uh, cryptanalyst, and then uh, they decrypted it and then did reverse engineering on it as everything is happening. When you have cryptography, you would have to build something and break it. So the team that breaks it will, like, uh, broke this and then provided the information to uh, the British uh, troops in order for them to design similar machines later on. In my old university, we had few designs of an Enigma machine from World War II. We used to just play around with them for a little. So this is the general model, for example, of a cipher. This is, is the modern era. So it's not anymore a substitution. Maybe, we'll see. So you would have a message, you would have a cipher, you would have a key, encryption, and decryption. So when you want to encrypt a message, you will push it to an encryption model, no, whatever a mathematical model that is going to represent this encryption model, and then you will decrypt it. And then you have to make sure it's bijective mapping because it has to go both ways, because you have to be able to decrypt if you encrypt it. And we started right now of the era of making sure that we have structures, 18, 83. Different scientists came in different stages, and they said, you can just build any component and call that component a cryptographic primitive, because you, then you will be, you know, prone to attacks or weak, <laughs> um, so vulnerable to just receive certain attacks. 
So Kirchhoff started and said, you cannot just hide your design. You cannot say that I have a design and you design a certain security system and you hide that design. You have to make sure that you provide the public design and you had only the most important part of that design, which is the key. So rule number one, hide everything except, uh, show everything except the key. So, and then black box security, which says if you built a crypto system, then it should be secure regardless of the black box attacks that are meant for this. So if you built a system and you, sh uh, and you give it away, then whatever attacks I'm doing, black box attacks like ciphertext attacks. So this system will exhibit only the ciphertext to me. So if I had a ciphertext attack or chosen plain text ciphertext attack, then the system is supposed to be prone to that attack. When I say chosen plain text ciphertext means I would have the plain text and ciphertext mapping together, the messages uh, before encryption and after encryption. Shannon, the godfather of coding theory, I would say one of the uh, uh, um, initiator of what we call an ideal cipher, he came in and he said it's not enough to just say, okay, show us the design publicly and make sure it's a black box. You have to make sure that it has certain properties. Substitution is not anymore the main property. If you will substitute bytes, it's fine, but I will still can reverse the substitution because it might be linear. So I have to introduce certain things. So um, the concept as well that he introduced is the concept of ideal cipher, which means um, a cipher should be an independent random uh, permutation for all its existence. You cannot tell, so in plain English, it means if I sniffed your traffic, I will not be able to tell if this is encrypted traffic or unencrypted traffic. For me, it's random. So I shouldn't be able to distinguish the signature of your encryption or decryption, okay? So, we got this, it's open. Uh, the communication uh, theory says here it has to have perfect secrecy, so the message length normally may be the same as the uh, key length. That's what we have, in, uh, he proved what we have uh, called, uh, yeah, one-time pad, and then ideal cipher, and then he said, you have to make sure you have a distance between your current security margin of this cryptographic primitive and the next one. And how can you decide this? By knowing the length of your key and the length of your plain text. So he said, if you have a, link, a key, k here is the length of your key, divided by the length of your plain text times whatever redundancy in your English language you will have, then you will be able to know the minimal immunity that you should have for your system. So this will tell you if you're, for example, if this is one, it means your system is very weak. It takes one plain text to attack your system. It's a horrible system, because you can definitely sniff and get one attack. But if it says it takes two to the power 80, uh, two to the power 80 messages. So maybe it's not practical to save all of these messages and build them. Okay, confusion. So confusion, you have to make sure that you destroy your relationships between the input and, and what? And the output of your ciphertext. And destroying this relationship means that you have to use nonlinear functions, okay? You have to use nonlinear components. So make sure that you use nonlinear component, destroy relationship, fine, we did this, and then confusion, uh, and then uh, Diffusion, which means if you broke this relationship, you need to make sure that if you changed one bit, everything changes in the output, or maximum changes will happen on the output. So all of these are like 
right now mathematical rules of building safe and robust crypto systems. We moved from the era where it's more about substitutions and simple methods into the era where we have to make sure that we follow certain mathematical models in order to build these, uh, these products. And it's not easy to build the maximal diffusion because you have to make sure that if you induced, which is perfect for an attacker, if you induced one single in certain ciphers or in certain crypto systems, if, if you induced one single change, then the change will propagate to the next few rounds, to the full output of it. So, Dr. Khan, صح? So, a nonlinear function is a function that cannot, okay, nonlinear mapping. A nonlinear mapping, it means you cannot go from the output to the input directly, and going back is very difficult. So let me just uh, simplify it by saying, uh, by saying it this way. I'm sorry for all of the mathematicians in the house. I just want to say in the uh, in plain English. Thank you, Dr. Khan. I know he, you are a mathematician, so maybe you wanted uh, the audience to know. Thank you so much. Thank you. So, and then Shannon said it should be a product, so you shouldn't have a single layer. So you have diffusion, confusion, diffusion, confusion. So you have to layer your whole system, and you build it in iteration. So now our primitives will look like this. Okay? Will look like this, something like this. So instead of having one single layer, we will have several layers here that we can put finally into hardware or software. So this is what we call a Feistel structure, where you do the parallel, um, where you just you know, split your input to different layers. And then, OK, you could see here the key addition, for example. You could see the substitution layer in the S boxes, which is our nonlinear layer. And then you could see here the diffusion happening, and you could see the layering as well. So it's a product of, the, of this happening several times. So a standard cipher that we have at the moment, is it enough? Is this level of security enough? No, it's not enough. So the community said, fine. They started having competitions. Uh, maybe uh, one of them, I don't know if you know, NIST competition in uh, 1990 uh, when they wanted to initiate, after of course initiating this, which is one of the encryption standards that you have in all of most of your banking uh, cards and it's broken and obsolete. So um, they wanted to initiate another uh, encryption, which they called uh, AS, for example, the Advanced Encryption Standard, and they wanted to choose this encryption. So the whole community said, no, we will not allow the design of this cipher to come from a specific lab. So they had this competition where the contribution came from every part of the world, the analysis was open, and then they could choose one of uh, these ciphers. And they ended up choosing uh, Belgian design. It's called Dryendel. And they choose this. This is what we are using in most of our equipment, even in your broken WBA2 at the moment since October 2017. So that's one of the designs that is being used. So the margin of security of this design, and the security margin is very important because it defines how these primitives are resilient to attacks. So the margin here is 128 bits. So the, the researchers said, okay, you can design something. If the key size is 128, then probably you're safe and secure. And the reason behind this, we'll know in a while. It takes two to 128 
operations. And two to 128 operations, thanks to Osgore talks last time, is 90 billion years in normal times without adding quantum you know, powers to the equation. So the community said, fine, these are standard encryption, we can fit them in, but how can we fit this in crypto devices and IoT devices or energy harvesting chips or all of these implants that you put in the human body if you want to secure these, which is they don't have encryption at the moment, okay? Remote controls, they have like a very, very specific uh, computational powers. And all of, all of the other RFIDs, so would 128 be sufficient for all of these devices? So the community started again building all over the globe different initiatives to make sure that you can build crypto that's light and would not look like the huge Enigma machine and that would fit into your mobile devices, okay? So let's fit the monster into small pieces, okay? And give it as a gift to the world. Um, so they built this and in mind they kept certain parameters and certain metrics. They say that if it's, it should fit in hardware then we have to care about the chip size, the energy consumption, the power consumption, because it, it affects the energy consumption, affects the battery life of that device, and the gate equivalence, it, it affects the size of the device, uh, the latency, the clock cycle, it affects all of the speed and the throughput and all of these. And then uh, the software implementation on the other side, uh, the other side, can you optimize this code? Can you build it in smaller RAM size and all? So they reached a conclusion that you have to have a design which is less than 2000 AS uh, gate equivalence. GE stands for gate equivalence. AS, mind you, started with more than 3000 gate equivalence. So even the standardized design that exists and that's in the standard, um, and it takes normally three years to push certain crypto standards within, within the cycle of being standardized and uh, existing in all of your industry, in your satellite communication and everything, it's, it existed for more than uh, this gate equivalence. Then a huge awareness came to the community and they decided we will not just design random cryptographic primitives because we will not be able to use them in, uh, in, in, in hardware devices. So then they said, okay, we have to care about the power, throughput, energy, area, and they started designing different. Some of these um, you could see here, uh, for example, mCrypton is, is one of the designs that existed from 1990 from AS competition. You have Present, which is a new design, and Prince, which is a new hardware, uh, um, yeah, hardware catered design. These are all ciphers in the picture, no hash function, okay? Okay then, and then you have now ciphers that can fit into com compact devices hopefully, so crypto cores came into the picture, how can we make sure that we can build crypto accelerators that will compute cryptography faster. So this is what we have when we have, for example, Haswell, Haxwell, um, Intel new processors and all of these uh, devices. Okay. So can we have a crypto accelerator to make sure that we can push our device computation to the limit for public encryption, for example, or for elliptic curves, or for all of these other CASOMI, which is one of the ciphers that you use on your mobile phone. Um, then we standardized a few of them. So we have PRESENT, which is standardized, 2014, Cliffia, and 
we have also authenticated ciphers. So the community said it's not enough to just build ciphers into separate platform. You have to make sure that they are authenticated and they build authenticated cipher. At the moment, we have also since, uh, since 2000, okay, so what happened 2012? Do you remember? Do you remember a guy called Snowden? So in crypto, we have this informal era, which we called pre-Snowden era and after Snowden era. So Snowden came into the picture and said, guys, you have to wake up everybody in the crypto community because your designs are broken and they're um, all of these export rules that you have to make sure that you have standardized ciphers and pushed into the industry. It's to make sure that you are using broken crypto. So certain, uh, you know, uh, state nations, uh, nations with the security state and stuff, they can have access to breaking these devices and getting to your system because they have, assumingly, uh, quantum computational power. And he mentioned a few of the designs, and one of them elliptic curves, RSA elliptic curve for one of uh, the sizes. And the community verified that, and then for sure they discovered that, yes, it's broken. And uh, they provided the analysis of that broken system maybe two months or three months after his revelations, which is weird. I mean, like, we have to be pointed out that it's actually happening so we can provide the proof. So then um, the communities as well, the academic community and the industrial community initiated their own revolution against this because they don't want all of the design that they built for crypto to go to waste. They wanted them to be uh, used by industry or overlaid to industry and to government. So what they did is uh, they initiated another competition on two different levels, one of them in, in Europe and one of them in the US, but in the, the one in US, which is the one formalized by NIST, and the deadline for this is the end of this month, 30th, few days, where you have to aggregate and collect all post-quantum solutions, solutions that will be resilient against quantum attacks for cryptography, even if you have quantum powers. So we have New Hope, which is one of the few designs that is even before the competition ended, latest base design, code-based crypto. And um, it's been also, I think, uh, Google was one of the few companies that embraced New Hope and tried to use this design as well. Um, okay. So how can we verify these systems? Because normally we have them from the community. We have to verify them. Cryptoanalysis comes into play here. We have to make sure that we can do certain attacks. Attack models existed, so if we don't have the, uh, if we don't have the analysis, the whole white box analysis of the system, then we can do black box analysis to it, and we can do reverse engineering to whatever uh, crypto chip that we have and build similar designs where we can read on the oscilloscope and do side channel attacks or we do other types of attacks to just break into the provided security. We also have what we call uh, statistical attacks, which is linear, differential, algebraic attacks that you just can use to break the mathematical model. And once you have a total break of this, then your system is, is normally useless and insecure. And what we are trying to provide here from uh, uh, the Center for Cybersecurity with different researchers across uh, the globe, from, uh, we have researchers from Reuven and researchers as well from DTU, and uh, from the center working on making sure that we use hybrid techniques. So we don't 
use only the power of a single technique to attack a system. But if we got stuck, then we use, for example, a different attack mechanism. So uh, remember I've told you that 128 look very strong because it takes 2 to 128, and then you have to and like use computational powers that will be 2 to 28 to just break into the system, which is signified as a very strong system. I'm not sure of how strong is exceptionally strong for 256. So when you build a system here, the takeaway is make sure that you don't, because 2 to 40 can be done in one day on MacBook Pro, on the current MacBook Pro, less than one day, this kind of search operation. So, and even 2 to 64 if you have certain uh, algorithms. So you have to be sure not to use these encryption systems. Okay, so why do we do cryptanalysis? Because we want to improve the risk, uh, to improve the uh, security margins. We have a risk here. If we don't do proper cryptanalysis, then we use a random, random ciphers around. So we have to improve this and make sure that we have proper security instilled. This is uh, an example of uh, analysis we have done on print cipher, and that's a cipher used on RFID tags, and. Uh, we discovered that there is a weakness because the designers of the cipher did not um, did this kind of what we call uh, round counters, and they restricted the round counters distribution to this layer. The diffusion of this cipher is not proper. So you end up with a problem that for a certain number of keys, this encryption is useless. So you would have an invariant to space of keys, which means if you applied the encryption or you did not apply the encryption, using that key, that set of key, that amount of keys, it's, it's, uh, uh, it will be like not applying the encryption at all. The encryption is, uh, is not uh, happening. So this is what we had here. This is an example of one of the keys that we use this attack on. So you could tell that the input is exactly the same as the output, which means that it's useless to apply all of these layers and build the hardware for it and assume that it will be secure. Out of the, so this cipher had uh, around, uh, yes, it had around 80 bits. So from the 80 bits, we discovered 2 to 56, a class of 2 to 56. So the, the real security of this cipher is 2 to 28, which is something you can break in less than one day. So you are using a cipher which claims to be secure because it's 2 to 80, so you're saying, okay, Huda, I'm using this, it's not easy for you to break it, or I'm gonna use the other version, the other variant, which we have here, is 1 to 60, which is not gonna be easy for you to break. But you will have weakness in the system, you didn't build your diffusion layer properly, so you can break into this system. The same thing here, we apply the attacks on uh, what we call uh, Simon and Speck, which are a family of ciphers that are meant to be used in a hardware uh, environment, and they're meant to break, uh, uh, they're meant to build security for hardware devices, very, very light hardware devices, proposed by national security agencies, researcher and national security agency in the US. So the community, of course, they were proposed post-Snowden uh, you know, declarations. So the community was motivated to, let's just try to attack the system. So attack the system, backward direction and forward direction. This is what we call impossible differential and we discovered that we can attack it for up to now because we used our also hybrid techniques. We were able to attack it for 28 rounds. So 
Thank you for your patience so far through going uh, through this journey for uh, cryptographic evolution. And the reason I'm taking you here is to ask you this question. Do you think what we're doing in building these primitives, and these are like the minimalistic, you know, um, cryptographic elements here, is enough in terms of building security? Let's start with this. These are like waves of innovation. And apparently we are here. So <laughs> it started with, with the first wave, that's uh, iron, water, power, and textile. And then the second wave was steam power. Third wave, electricity, chemical. Uh, so you could see the timeline here. Uh, and, uh, you know, chemical and internal combustion engine. And then you have the fourth wave around electronics and aviation and space, because that's around the time, you could see in 1950, around the time the first integrated circuit was designed. And then you get to see the, to have these waves. So the community, the question was about what's the next wave? What would be the next wave? So every wave had a highlight. So what would be the highlight of this wave? Would it be something around nanotechnology or global system? Cloud computing, sustainable technology, yeah, artificial intelligence, augmented reality, or all, all of these things, genomics. Um, so I was in a in a talk recently, and the conversation was about the boundaries in this era is very uh, minimal. So it would be about everything in here. So no boundaries anymore uh, anymore between science, because you get to use augmented reality and all of and the improving computations for genomics or in better cloud computing or uh, solutions or in building a better nanotechnology. And cybersecurity should be part of this map somewhere here where you build better security for all of these systems, otherwise it will not happen. The good thing about this waves of innovation is the fact that you have bad news. So before every wave, you would have uh, some kind of distress or some kind of depression happening. And then there would be some kind of, of hopefully, uh, you know, a technological breakthrough. And we hope that given the amount of attacks that we have in the past, this is where I'm taking you right now, in the past year, there should be a, technic, uh, you know, a technological revolution for cybersecurity and cryptography. Okay? So, what would be the next wave for, uh, you know, innovation? Would it be IoT? So, we could see here, this is a forecast by, you know, Gartner, where they say that digital security and Internet of Things, which is, this is a very late one, 2015, um, is, is an, a very important aspect, and it will just, you know, flourish around different areas here. Bitcoins and everything, a new system of banking. And we do have this law that says, and I'm, I'm, I'm taking you through this tour to make sure that you understand that whatever we build in crypto might not be enough because we're still running a race in here against Moore's law, who's the co-founder of Intel, and he said the number of transistors incorporated in a, in, in a single chip will, will double every 24 months, okay? And then, if you wanted to measure this, again, a certain quantum computations, so would that allow you to do quantum computations on a shift? We don't know, because we do have a forecast that's saying in 2017 to 2026, the slow 
will have a saturation around here because of the quantum computation that's coming in. Okay? Oh, okay. So I'm sorry for the, this is like a commercial thing happening right now. So just to show you where are we going in terms of digital revolution. Okay, and are we ready in terms of the security that we're building? Is it enough? What? Mm. So, it seems that you need a connection. Anyway, so this will show you uh, Finland 100 years from now. And this is a video that was released by Department of Innovation in Finland. Finland has uh, some kind of uh, mandate that in 100 years they want to be the first digital nation in Europe. And they took that uh, uh, message and they went contagiously out throughout the world to make sure that they spread this message also to Singapore because Singapore is building their Singapore smart nation and to also uh, bring it here to Dubai because Dubai is building their smart government. And when you see this kind of videos, uh, the major promotional aspect is about Building IoT, building uh, autonomous manufacturing units, building autonomous uh, bio-human, I would say, because just by looking at this person, you would know the blood pressure of that person, or you would analyze the health, uh, you know, analytics about that person, and privacy comes into play here. And primitives like uh, ciphers and hash functions are widely used into these systems to make sure that do they exist. How many of you in, in here um, do actually have Bitcoins? Nice, investors in the house. How much of that do you have? Yeah? So Bitcoins started with an evolution and, and at the moment it's taking over the universe because out of Bitcoins you can, you you introduce what we call blockchains, where people can aggregate all of these uh, uh, blockchains all around, uh, you know, uh, or can mine all of these, you know, um, certain uh, blockchains and hash them and then use them for, for example, smart contracts, can use them for uh, crowdfunding, can use them for, um, I've heard lately that uh, two authorities in Dubai that they're building a fully digital system, and there are sensitive authorities, one of them, yeah? It's not only disk, it's actually also, yeah. They're building a huge uh, digital contract across their platform in order to make sure that every contract that comes to, to, uh, to, their, uh, to their units is highly digitalized and all of this. So digital identity, digital access, and all of these distributed apps. The issue with this is, on the other hand, uh, of on the other side of the universe. It's good to have application in terms of when you build these crypto system because these crypto systems are built on hash functions, for example. But you also have the wave of people building their own, uh, uh, I would say, a blockchain crackers and trying to crack these Bitcoins and they're building their farms where they're having the hardware to build this. I'm not sure if, uh, yeah. Let me see if we have something here. So it see. seems like they're not here for a paycheck. They're here because they, they... So I just asked you in the beginning of this talk, what is a cryptology for a normal person? 
And the question was all of these pictures. And this is the question for a normal person. The person, Tatiana here, she's just a normal person. She doesn't know crypto, but this is crypto for It seems like they're not here for a paycheck. They're here because they, they want to be a part of something that's really big that they can tell is happening all around them. To be able to look back and say, hey, we were there. I say get rich or die trying. Hi, my name is Liliana, and I live and work in Russia. For the Crypto Rush movie, we want to film and show you the largest crypto mining farms in the world. Interview the industry leaders, experts, and visionaries. Those guys are the heroes, in my opinion. I'm at one of the huge, hugest facilities in the world. Blockchain processing space is not the friendliest environment. Rock and roll. <laughs> so, that's a normal person building their own farms and institution of making sure that they can mine bitcoins. And so, because this is the new rich of the world where you can have a digital currencies without banking units in between, right, and no exchanges in between. And based on the same technology of, uh, of Bitcoins, you build blockchains, and then the chain of trust that you build there based on the hash functions that propagates, and you can build all of the other technologies. So this is the revolution of cryptography and crypto systems in here. And, and all of you have heard, OK, so who does know quantum? Uh, computations here in the house. And instead of computing based on, for example, normal computational power, that's normal bit sequence, you would have a parallel computation based on what we call qubits, okay? In order to speed up these computations on, 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 on multiple levels. So this is like in a very, very simplified manner. So what normally takes you 2 to 28, here, 2 to n, and if n was 128, that's our sequence from before. What normally takes you 2 to 28 in order to break these sequences might take you seconds, actually, to break in the, to the security of this. So this is also the dark side of crypto. How can we make sure that we can use crypto on the other side? And um, the rumor that ransomware started because Department of Justice in, in certain nation wanted to make sure that you can find uh, computer crimes. So they ended up locking the machines and telling people that you have a fine, you have 72 hours to pay this, and then if you paid it, then we will unlock the uh, yes. Yeah, exactly. And then, of course, people on the dark side decided to use that and unlock the universal uh, you know, technology all around the world. So we end up with the attacks that like WannaCry and attacks like what we have uh, like maybe two months ago when we heard the propagation of attacks going from Russia to uh, London to Singapore where Singapore nation resolved to just switching off internet from like ma major medical industry to make sure that they will not be hit by ransomware. And ransomware is, is a major encryptor, so you would have your system, your whole system will be encrypted, for example, your file system, and then you will receive um, a request of ransom. If you bait this ransom, you will, your system will be decrypted and you will have access to your, to your, can you imagine a doctor in the hospital who wants to access his 
uh, medical records of the patients or who want to access, or, or maybe if you have, uh, you know, surgery, robotic surgeries, uh, and these robotic systems, they're centralized in, in terms of control within certain units. If everything was locked and they have to unlock it within certain hours, what will happen? So thank you so much for your attention. I'd like to thank my amazing research team for the information that they have provided through this because this is a collaborative work uh, from uh, my researchers in NYU Abu Dhabi and my collaborators from DTU and Leuven. Um, uh, I have uh, Pandian who is in the house who just arrived today and he's my postdoc. And thank you Pandian because we have been able to build an architecture, a simulation of a hardware architecture where we built a stream cipher that we use to encrypt, uh, you know, uh, you know, heart monitors, and embed it in that system. And our goal is to make sure that we bridge the gap between what we develop in academia in terms of security and what the industry is using. So, thank you so much for your attention, and I'll be more than happy to receive your questions. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu institute.